0: baseball is an individual sport, played as a team, and that if everybody is to develop to their maximum capacity, they need an individualized program to develop optimally. And if everyone is developing optimally, that's what's going to help the team win.
1: What's up and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I'm Jonathan Gellner and thank you for tuning in. Today's guest is Ben Brewster, who in short is a player strength coach, author, and founder of Tread Athletics. Ben and I discuss how he went from throwing 75 as a high school freshman to throwing 95 in pro ball. We also examine how we should be training our players for mobility, strength, and throwing mechanics. You're going to love this episode with Ben Brewster. Ben Brewster, thank you so much for joining us on Ahead of the Curve.
0: Thanks for having me. Excited to be here.
1: We'll start off by... You know, tell us a little bit about your story, a little bit about your playing career. I know that that uh, you are, are well versed in the Twitter world, and and I've been following you for a long time. But tell us how you got to where you are today.
0: Definitely. So, um, just a you know, quick background for for those of you who don't know me. I'm I'm still currently pursuing my own my own baseball career, my own pro career. Um, I'm the founder of a company called Tread Athletics, which is primarily a remote velocity training company. We work mostly with pitchers from all around the country. Um, working with, you know, giving them custom mobility routines, workout programs, nutrition plans, throwing programs. Um, and so it's, it's one of the very few, uh, remote training programs that exists. So I have that going on. I'm currently pursuing my own pro career, but the way that it all started was over 10 years ago. You know, I was, I was throwing 70, 73 miles an hour. I had never really devoted myself to baseball. I love baseball. I, I kind of played on the local, you know, in-house teams and. I was one of the better players just because it wasn't great competition. I had a little bit of natural athleticism on my side. But I never really never really took it further than that. Um but I got to high school and suddenly I wasn't the best player on the field anymore. Suddenly, you know, I had a, a what I would consider an awful first, you know, an awful freshman year, an awful welcome to high school moment where I, I was struggling for the first time in my life really in anything. And and the way I looked at it was I kinda had two two paths to take. Um I could just kind of Continue coasting along in my natural ability, or I could d- decide to step up and, and go all in. That's kind of my personality is if I'm going to decide to do something, I'm going to go all in on that. And so it was kind of a wake up moment that, hey, if this is something I want to do, you know, past high school, I'm going to have to really flip the switch and fully devote myself to developing myself to, to the greatest extent that I possibly can. You know, that, that very first, first time on the radar gun, throwing 70 to 70, topping out of 73. I'm six foot three. 150, maybe 155 pounds, never lifted a weight, never thrown a weighted ball. First time ever thrown to a radar gun. Not the best genetic, so to speak, you know, for, for wanting to go play professional baseball one day. Um, not the best starting point, but I knew and, and I decided at that point that I was going to do whatever it took and and that, that whatever happened, happened. Like I was going to put everything I possibly had into this goal and just let the cards fall how they, how they felt. And so, those next few years was, was me obsessively reading and learning everything that I possibly could. And at, at that time, there wasn't a ton of information out there. There were books, there were published books. There's, you know, no one, you could buy Nolan Ryan's book. You could buy Randy Johnson's book. Um, but there weren't podcasts like this. There, there weren't a ton of baseball resources online. There were a couple of pitching forums, you know, some of the, some of the older listeners here might recognize let's talk pitching, on I'm in set pro. There were a couple of forums and I, and I kind of gravitated towards those and, you know, I was that, I was that obsessive kid on those forums with 10,000 posts. Um, I actually started that very first year. I started a, an online pitching log just to, just to keep myself accountable and, and publicly kind of show my progress. And in that very first post, I said, you know, this is my journey to division one college baseball and beyond when I was throwing 70 miles an hour. And so I used that. I began this whole journey in a very public, publicly accountable way when I was 15. And so it was, it was learning. It was, basically banging my head against the wall trying to figure it out over the next few years, you know, not really having any guidance, hurting myself a million times by trying all these different training techniques and different throwing drills. And it was really a trial and error approach. I, I always come back to that with, with the guys that coach is that training is a trial and error process. And for me it was mostly error. It was trying twenty things and nineteen of them don't work and then the one thing does and that sticks. And then it's trying another 20 things and 19 of them don't work and the next thing sticks. Um, and I didn't have any mentors or coaches who had been through the process before. So it was it was really all on me to to try to figure it out. And I think that was one of the big benefits as I started the process was that I wasn't looking at it from this conventional wisdom. I didn't have I didn't have, you know, that that old school coach with 30 years of coaching experience telling me what to do. I was coming at it from a completely different perspective, trying to figure it out on my own. And so my my perspective wasn't necessarily muddied by all these uh, you know preconceptions about what what it meant. What what I you know I I didn't believe that velocity was just God given like everyone seemed seemed to believe at the time because I was I was coming at it from a different perspective. So the way I looked at it from the start and the reason that I really believe that it wasn't the craziest thing in the world to think that I could throw a ball ninety five, even though everybody else might think that was crazy, is I I looked at it from a logical perspective. I said. You know, I have my body is a series of levers, you know, physics is the same for me as it is for the big leader. You know, I don't have the muscle mass to accelerate those levers as fast as they can accelerate their levers. I'm not moving my body through space as efficiently as they are. To me, it was just like a physics equation. And if I could figure out how to train my muscles to be strong enough and powerful enough, if I could figure out how to move my body through space the same way that they did, to me, there was no reason that I wouldn't be able to elicit similar you know, performance, similar numbers as as what those guys could. So that was kind of my logic. I you know, I didn't know for sure that I would be able to do it, but but I saw no reason why that shouldn't work in theory. And Mm -hmm. so I was able to stay hungry because every single year I was a lot of a lot of errors, but every single year there was steady progress over time. And so that kept me motivated. That kept me hungry. Um I kept I kept hitting these benchmarks that first year, you know, didn't know anything about lifting or or nutrition or anything. I was still able to to gain ten or fifteen pounds, still able to put on Eight miles an hour during 81 the next year, despite not knowing anything, I was able to by the end of high school, I had touched 87. I was, you know, maybe 83, 85 as a kind of low arm slot lefty. And so from there, I felt like I was in a decent position to, to make a run for trying to, to walk on to a division one team. So I actually committed to University of Maryland academically because I was looking for schools that had an exercise science program. I was looking for any possible edge. That could, you know, if studying that gave me an extra 1% chance with that knowledge of getting to my goals, I was going to pick the best, you know, the best schools. I was going to look at the best schools that would give me that knowledge so that I could have just a slightly better chance. So I picked, I picked Maryland. I was, it was in state, but it was also a top five exercise science program. I committed there academically, you know, knew nothing about the baseball team besides they were an ACC school and figure you know let's do this i'm ready i'm ready for a for a walk-on trial like let's do this so i actually this is the this is june end of june for before classes started that september and i sign up for a you know one of those prospect recruiting camps which the you know for those of you who don't know those are those tend to be more fundraising more money-making camps guys don't really get recruited out of those camps you know there's some instructional component it's good it's good exposure it's good experience for the for the high school guys that do that but you really don't get recruited out of those camps that's not really a thing but i, I signed up for it and i said you know i'm going to go to this camp i'm going to you know pitch my ass off and i'm going to i'm going to make the team like i went into the camp with that mentality and so we start the screen we start scrimmaging i throw two innings you know it's not the greatest competition in the world but i finished two innings three up three down both times three strikeouts another three strikeouts um the head coach eric backage who is currently the head coach at michigan mm-hmm. He comes up to me. He's like, got a weird grin on his face. And he's, you know, he says, he's kind of, he's kind of intrigued. He's like, trying to make me nervous. He says, you know, that was pretty good, but let's see you do that one more time. If you can do that one more time, if you go out there and strike out three more batters, you'll have a spot on my team. Hmm. So it's like, yeah, every time I tell this story, it's, it's, people say like, that's a lot of pressure. Sure. But I think a lot of pitchers that are listening can kind of relate when you, you've had games where you kind of just like had it. You've had games where there wasn't a doubt that you could the ball was gonna go where you want it to go. Um I was lucky enough that on that day I you know on that day I, I seemed to have it. On that day there wasn't any doubt in my mind that I didn't get nervous by that. I said, all right, let's do it. Went out there, struck out the next three guys, shook his hand, ran up, hugged my mom, told her I made the team. So that was that was kind of the this was kind of the first leg of the process. It was it was squeezing my way onto a onto a college team and that was kind of the that was kind of like the first stepping stone in the in my career but that was also that was also the start of a, a whole nother mountain to climb
1: and so so how many years were you at maryland and you did play uh in professional baseball as well so what did it look like going you know from a walk-on at a division one school uh what did that process look like in your three three or four years and then uh getting into professional baseball and and you and trying to get back there even now
0: yeah so basically you, you find out Right away, that you are the the lowest the lowest uh, rung on the totem pole. You, you find out real quick that you, you know, especially in my case, you're kind of the nobody, and it humbles you even quicker. I, I knew that going in, but you definitely get humbled right away and, and realize that um, you know everyone else on the team was the top five player in their state. Everyone else, you know, was a draft prospect. Everyone else has all these accolades, and you really have to stay stay focused, stay hungry, and, and not not go along in my case i didn't have the luxury of being able to go along with a lot of whatever all the other guys seem to be getting into like you can't when you're when you're the bottom of the rung you can't you can't get away with with not focusing you can't get away with not taking your nutrition seriously you can't get away with not taking your you know your school your studies seriously it was it was really just doing everything i could to keep my head down and continue to develop a big benefit for me was it kept me hungry I saw the fu- I saw the future. I saw what was possible. I saw these other guys who weren't working any harder, who weren't necessarily more athletically gifted, you know, from an athleticism standpoint, mobility standpoint. I saw what was possible in front of me every day by guy and it and it suddenly became apparent that these guys weren't superhumans. They were mm-hmm. just, you know, maybe they're a little bit bigger, some of them were a little bit stronger at that point in time. Some of them might have had a little bit better mobility. The biggest thing was a lot of them had better mechanics. For me, mechanics were kind of a limiting factor for a long time they just you know they move better I, I was figuring out that it wasn't this genetic thing it was you know these guys have better mechanics these guys do certain things and so being around that at all times um, was very motivating for me so even though I was I was at the bottom of the list and I, I knew I wasn't going to be getting playing time immediately uh, it kept me hungry and I, I suddenly had a lot more resources at my disposal And I was able to, to see all these examples of, of really, really high level players on a day to day basis. And so that, that definitely contributed to, to the development. Whereas I I came from high school where, you know, the other, the other kids in my, you know, high school team were throwing 74 miles an hour. Like I wasn't surrounded by quality players, but when you're surrounded by guys throwing 94, you, you start to pick up on that. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of intangibles you start to pick up on. You start to kind of pick up some of those movement patterns. And and internalize them in in your own deliveries, um, that sort of thing, and it starts to become more of a competitive environment. So, whereas you know, not really knowing what I was doing, I you know, squeaked out thirty pounds over three years um, in high school. I gained twenty five or thirty pounds over those first three to four months in college. Wow! You know, because I finally was, I was finally in that competitive environment on a a very structured routine. To to his credit, our our head coach, you know, had a strength and conditioning and you know, kind of background. Made nutrition very, very, a very, very clear priority to everybody, you know, sat guys down one on one meetings and went through their schedule, you know, took them through dining halls and pointed out what to eat and what quantities. To his credit, like that every, every freshman that put a 20 pound weight gain goal, which was eight or nine of the incoming freshmen who were trying to gain weight, every single one of them gained that weight over that fall. So to, to his credit, uh, you know, Eric Baggage did a great job with that. And that, that kind of, that was a turning point for me because suddenly I was, I was just as physical as these other guys. I wasn't this skinny high school kid. Suddenly I was 215 pounds. I was just as physical as all these other guys. Still not performing at the same level. But now I knew that the, the physical aspect wasn't, wasn't a factor. I was strong, as strong as those guys are stronger. I was as mobile as those guys. I was as athletic as those guys. Still throwing eight miles an hour slower. So I knew the mechanics were kind of the limiting factor. And that, that really let me hone in on what, what I needed to work on. And and that, again, the whole trial and error process, just basically testing and failing and testing, and failing and banging my head against the wall and, and trying things and seeing what worked and what didn't.
1: And so the entire time that you're at Maryland, are you still on the, the the let's talk pitching forums and are you still experimenting on your own? Are they allowing you to do a lot of that stuff? Because most coaches in general have some set things that they want all of their pitchers to be doing. And, you know, you have the the select few that are that are good, in my opinion, that are like, OK, so if this really works for you, then let's try and incorporate that. Did they allow you to do the things that you felt were helping you be more, more successful?
0: Yeah, So I had a couple of different coaching staffs uh, over those four years. Um, there was coaching change halfway through. Um, in general, there, there was a good amount of flexibility that I was given that a lot of the athletes I coach now aren't given. You know, it's kind of it's kind of hit or miss. Some coaches are are relatively structured and strict about that there was a good amount of structure but still if if, you know we had 20 minutes to throw you know i had the flexibility to experiment with certain drills or tweak my technique or work on different internal cues outside of practice i was completely in control of my my nutrition which was a big part of it Mm -hmm. i was completely in control of any additional mobility work i wanted to do on my own you know if i wanted to do dry dry mechanical work and come in at 11 p.m into the locker room like i'm not recommending everybody go do that and and Overthink their mechanics, but you know I, I had a lot of freedom to do things outside of practice, which a lot of guys don't realize is even an option sure. They think that it's sure. it's just show up to practice, do what you're told, and then leave and that's part of it, but everybody's doing that, and so a lot of times the, the what differentiates guys making the same progress as everyone else on the team and uh, going above and beyond that is is what happens outside outside of practice outside of those three hours you're on the field every
1: day right absolutely. So let's get into the uh, player development piece a little bit, if you if you don't mind. So so let's say you know random Twitter follower sends you an email and says, Coach Brewster, uh, since you guys are running a remote location right now, what do we do for training? How do we how do we get started? And what's that? What's the first thing that you guys are going to do?
0: Yeah. So the first thing uh, before we ever work with anybody, we get on a call with them. Uh, we need to make sure guys are a good fit because with the remote training structure. You're not going to have a coach over your shoulder watching every rep, policing every rep. Again, I started the remote training format as something, basically figuring out something that I wish I would have had when I was training by myself with no guidance, but as a player who had already had the work ethic, already had the accountability and discipline and just needed something to follow and needed someone to bounce ideas and get feedback from when I needed it. So this is it's it's very important that we establish if the player himself is a good fit before we start working with him. We need to make sure he's internally motivated, not just being signed up by his dad. That's a big one. The, the, the guys who are internally motivated and reach out on their own, even if they're a 15 year old kid, but they reach out on their own, always a good experience working with them because we know they're gonna follow it. And we, when, again, when a guy follows it, we know we can control for all those variables in the program. And then if we need to make adjustments, it's a much simpler process versus the kid who like, you give him a nutrition plan, but he's following it 10% of the time. Mm-hmm it's everything's out the window. So we get on a call within 15, 10, 15 minutes. You you have an idea of that's a kid who's going to follow the program and about the kid who's, who is going to be, you know, self-directed and intrinsically motivated to do it. So that's, that's the biggest one that a lot of guys overlook. They want to right away. They want to hear about like, what are the specifics of the program? But in our experience, like the guys who get the best results subjectively are the guys who want it the most and that don't have to be policed. And, and follow it up on, you know, every step of the way. But as far as once a guy actually starts the program, there's a whole evaluation process where we're basically figuring out, okay, to throw a ball hard, you need to be able to move extremely efficiently down the mound. We're talking about pitchers in this case.
1: sure.
0: And you need to be able to, you need to have those, you know, requisite mobility to get into these extreme positions. Because very high-level throwers are getting into extreme positions if you look at it from a joint-by-joint joint standpoint. Their hips are in extreme positions, their shoulders in very extreme position, their torso. Um, so are they moving efficiently? If not, do they have the mobility to get into these positions? And then can they apply a high amount of force through these extreme end range positions? So we start them off with a full movement assessment to assess them on a joint by joint basis and assess them through a number of kind of functional, uh, functional movement markers. Can they do a, an overhead squat? Can they do lateral lunge? Um, how does their body move as a unit and then also how does it move on a on a piece by piece basis how does their shoulder in isolation move in 360 degrees and so hunting for any deficiencies in both of those environments and then also looking at the macro looking at how they move in their mechanics and you can kind of you can really kind of pinpoint and identify where they may be from a from a movement standpoint and then addressing those in their program addressing those with specific corrective exercises addressing those with you know specific mobility work that they're doing each day Mm -hmm. from a, from a strength strength training perspective, you know, being able to apply more force, it's, it's not just lifting weights, but to actually add the muscle mass, which is a direct requirement for being able to output high levels of force. There needs to be a nutrition component to that as well. You can't just give your body the stimulus, the training stimulus. You need to also give it the raw building blocks to actually gain that muscle mass. So, We'll have kids that have been training for three years, but, and training hard and they still weigh 170 pounds at six foot two because they've never been, they've never been given a nutrition program that's been laid out simply and easily to follow that they understand. And then that, that becomes the limiting factor. And as soon as we fix that piece of the puzzle, they gain eight pounds in their first month and they see how the process works and they say, okay, it becomes easy. Then that's, you know, we were talking about before we started this, you know, recording this podcast, we were talking about pitching in just some Jack. And for him, he he had already been training. He already had good mechanics. He already had a decent strength base. He you know he was deadlifting three fifty at fourteen years old, one hundred and thirty five pounds. But he was stuck because of the nutrition factor. That was his limiting factor. And as soon as we tweaked that part of the puzzle, he gained a pound and a half a week for the next two years,
1: roughly. Crazy.
0: And he was able to maintain maintain that because of his consistency, because because of his intrinsic motivation. You know his his dad his dad Rob wasn't looking over his shoulder, you know, maybe the first month of the program, he was, he was there for every workout and then he phased out and you have this 15 year old kid who's, you know, who's got it. He's, he's understood the process. He's bought himself into the process and he's seeing pound, pound and a half of weight gain every week. He's seeing his lifts go up five to 10 pounds every week. If he has any sort of, any sort of question, any sort of exercise substitution, like we're there to make that for him. We're there to adjust the program each month. And he sees his velocity start to start to climb. And And despite that, you look at the finish, you look at the end result, like you look at in Jack's case, it went from seventy six to to ninety five in three years, and it seems like a very linear, easy process. But when you actually break it down, you know much of that was plateaus. It's not an easy process. it's not a it's not a guaranteed process. It's much of it as a as a coach and as a player myself in my own process, much of it is fighting through plateaus, not getting too frustrated, and being willing to keep on trying, keep on failing. Keep on testing, keep on evaluating until you get through that plateau.
1: No, absolutely, and and I it's been fun watching his journey. I, I know I've been following Rob for a little while, and and just seeing you know him go from like you said seventy six to ninety five to signing a Division one uh, scholarship has been a lot of fun. And you talked about a couple of things that we should be measuring as far as nutrition and as far as uh, in the weight room goes. But can you do you mind getting into some specifics regarding those? Sure.
0: So, so we're measuring, you know, we, we touched on mobility. We touched on strength training. We're touching on, you know, throwing and mechanics. Like all of these things can be further broken down into metrics, into relevant metrics. Um, uh, from a mobility standpoint, it's things like shoulder internal rotation, thoracic spine extension rotation, um, hip internal rotation. These are all, these are all measurables that you can directly improve through training from a nutrition standpoint. It's not just. You know, the classic coach's advice to just make sure you're eating a lot of food or the seafood diet, eat everything you see. Like these are, those are easy, easy answers to give a player. Sure, they're no, late, sure. they're intellectually lazy answers because they don't actually solve the problem of, you know, player, the player needs to, needs as little friction as possible in actually changing his actions and his habits. It's not that they don't, re- they don't understand that eating more will help them gain weight. It's, it's the, the actually changing habits is more complicated than that. And so accounting for actually measuring, measuring calories, giving them the tools to measure calories and then further down macronutrients. So fat, carb, and protein intake, we're giving our guys the tools to do that, but keeping it simple in a way that they'll actually be able to do. So keeping it under about five minutes per day to enter what they eat and be able to track and make sure that their overall calories and macros are on targets that we give them in relation to whatever their, their body count goal is. So they're trying to gain 20 pounds in six months. Or, you know, some of our guys are trying to lose 20 pounds in six months or anywhere in between. They all have a specific calorie and macro goal that they're trying to hit. And we don't, we don't overcomplicate it with a million supplements. We don't, we get into some of that with, with our more advanced guys, but you want to make it as simple as possible without watering it down so much that it becomes ineffective. Mm-hmm. So from a nutrition standpoint, that's an example of some metrics that, that are extremely important. And, and with nutrition, it's also um, body weight tracking. Our guys are weighing themselves every single day. And it's it's being auto tracked on a trend line in their program, and they make sure that they're they're gaining or they're losing weight at, at the appropriate rate. So that's an important thing as well. And and as coaches, if we know the guy's following the program, if his weight isn't responding as it should be, then we can go in and adjust these me- these measurables up or down. We can adjust his target calories up or down depending on if he's not gaining weight fast enough or if he's gaining weight too fast. Or he's not losing weight fast enough or he's losing weight too fast. Then we basically go in and we're tweaking the variables. So that's nutrition. That's mobility from a throwing standpoint. Obviously velocity measurement is, is very important. Not to the point where every single throwing session, you know, you're busting the radar gun out, but it's, it's basically training blind. If you're setting a goal of improving velocity and you don't have a radar gun and you're not regularly getting numbers. So it's, it's still all within the scheme of. You know, within a, a periodized off-season scheme, you're not just like, you're not just max effort testing the first day of the off-season because, you know, radar readings are important. But so you still need to build up, build up, you know, capacity and, and all these things. But to not regularly radar for guys who are setting velocity goals is a mistake. And that's a common mistake is people don't want to invest in a radar gun because it's expensive but they'll invest in a $400 bat, but they won't invest in a $250 pocket radar or $300 pocket radar. So that's, that's an important one need to get velocity readings, not just on, you know, mound velos, but in on specific drills that can be really useful in, in determining, um, you know, determining different mechanical issues. If a guy has a really good velocity in, in a rocker drill and it's, it's as good or better than his, velocity out of his motion well that tells you something about how where he where the disconnect is where the where some velocity could potentially be leaking out of and what tweaks we might need to experiment with out of his delivery that's just an example from a strength perspective obviously we're getting numbers every single lift guys are you know tracking every single squat you know sets reps on everything all their accessory movements everything has a progression it's not just in there as three sets of ten and just do this it's you're trying to, you know, there's a specific progression on everything that we give them in their program. Sometimes the progression is volume based; they're building up reps over time. Sometimes it's intensity based; they're keeping low reps and they're building up weight over time. You know, sometimes it's we're progressing the instability of the exercise, where we're teaching their shoulder to be able to stabilize to increasingly unstable loads. So, whatever the progression is, there has to be a progression, and there has to, it has to be measured over time. So, those are just a couple examples going over the different pieces of the program.
1: program. No, I love it, and uh, it, it's, it's very concise. And you're doing all of this through a, a video program and tracking software?
0: Yeah, so we we, uh, we do a lot of the tracking through Microsoft Excel. We have a lot of tra- you know, kind of advanced tracking charts okay. uh, that we've developed in, in terms of being able to monitor a lot of this. Uh, for the nutrition side of things, we use an app called MyFitnessPal, which is a free nutrition tracking app. Again, I, I would recommend everybody get that. Mm-hmm.
1: We use even that. if your goal is that as well.
0: Is, yeah, even if the goal is you know weight maintenance, it, it just makes it so easy to to stay on track in under 5 minutes a day just you know auto save what what meals you frequently eat and you know it pops right up how many calories you still have to get for the day. And it just it adds a layer of consistency to to your nutrition.
1: Oh, for sure. And uh that that's the problem and that's the part that I run into a lot and and something that we've really harped on in the last year because you know, unless you're tracking it, you you really don't know what you're what what you're taking in. And kids are like, ah, I had a lot yesterday, or I drank a lot of water, or I made sure and get eight hours of sleep. But unless you're really digging into the specifics, which for a, a high school college coach like myself, it's it's kind of hard to do with thirty guys. But I mean, how important is it? You know, I mean, it, it's going to prevent injury. It's going to help us make gains in the weight room and on the field. And so. Uh, if it's important to us, it's just something that we've got to do, and I know it's something that, that the kids are—they're on their phones all the time, anyways. And what you say, it takes five minutes or less to, to be able yep. to do that.
0: A minute or so after each meal. Tip. Uh, so a tip for high school and college. So we do a couple. Uh, we do consulting with certain teams, a couple college teams, some some high school travel organizations, and one of the biggest tips nutritionally for for coaches is in order to you know you can't be monitoring what guys are putting into their body. The other You know, 20 hours of the day that they're not with you. So having them take in as much of that while they're, while they're with the team can be, can be pretty helpful. One thing that we did in college that, you know, for a couple of those years that was really helpful for, for my weight gain was we had a structured, a structured snack break before batting practice. So we basically at the halfway point of practice, it would be like a, you know, not only was it good to get guys to kind of zone out for a second so we could refocus, but five minutes, Everybody had to bring food to practice, whether it was two peanut butter sandwiches or a bag of trail mix or two granola bars. Um, everybody had to bring a snack of some sort, and that was mandatory. And the other thing that we did was we had a nutrition section in the locker room where everybody put five bucks in a week, and the coaches went to Costco and got bread and peanut butter and jelly and granola bars and tortillas and, and basically making sure that there's calories around so that there's never an excuse to not be eating something. Is that's, that's going to be the most important thing for, especially for guys, for guys like me who super fast metabolisms. Every team has a guy who claims that he can't gain weight, that he's tried forever and can't gain weight. And, you know, we've seen just over and over and over that that's not true with the guys that we, that we coach. It's, if they can't gain weight, it's, it's something about they're not able to get themselves into a consistent caloric surplus and it's figuring out why that is. And, and then it's, then it's basically targeting. How can we, how can we attack the problem from different angles? How can we make sure they always have food with them? How can we make sure that, you know, they're eating foods that are very calorically dense versus just snacking on carrots and eating chicken breasts for every meal? It's, there's a number of strategies that we employ to make, to make sure that these guys are able to stay in a consistent caloric surplus. Cause that's, that's ultimately what it boils down to. So yeah, as coaches, those are a couple of quick tips is have a snack break, halfway point of practice and have a nutrition corner or nutrition section and a, Fridge in the locker room.
1: No, oh, I got that, and and I love it writing that down as we speak. And so, uh st- staying on the player development piece, and let's go away from the just uh the nutrition weightlifting side a little bit. So, most of the guys that you get are pitchers. I'm assuming is that is that correct?
0: I would say about ninety percent are pitchers, and and the other ten are uh, usually position players that are either trying to gain weight or improve their arm strength. So, a lot of catchers, uh, a lot of outfielders as well.
1: Gotcha. Well, let's specifically uh, focus in on pitchers here. So, you know, x x guy that we were talking about earlier, that, who says, "Hey, Ben, you know, we we I wanna I wanna join your program." So, you walk him through the interview. You decide that he's a good fit. And what what specifically are you looking at on the mound whenever they whenever the first time that you watch him throw?
0: So, we're looking at how their how their body moves. We're looking at if they're able to get into what we consider high level positions. Are they? Um, able to get into their back hip? Are they able to uh, get their hips open at landing while keeping their upper half fully closed? So are they able to dissociate the lower half from the upper half? Um, are they able to get into a fully horizontally abducted or or scapulated position at landing with their with their upper half? So are they able to get their arm up and back at landing as they accelerate their torso? Are they able to get full layback in their throwing arm, or are they limiting? Are they limited in, in external rotation? You know, it's 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 not like it's not just watch. You can't necessarily know everything just from watching mechanics. You, you can have an, a general idea, but then pairing that with the movement assessment. You know, if you know a guy is missing layback, you don't necessarily know until you test. OK, is it pecs? Is it lats? Um, is it more of a capsule thing? You can kind of pinpoint a little bit more once you pair that with the assessment to figure out why he may or may not be moving or getting in, getting in and out of the, the right high level positions. So, you know, if, if a guy is not able to get into a fully separated position at landing, hips open, shoulders closed, a lot of times we're going right to the hip internal rotation on the back hip. That's a really common one. You can't get the back hip open if you don't have the hip internal rotation to get it open. And sometimes they get that open, but they don't have the thoracic rotation to their arm side and their upper half. They can't keep their shoulders closed because they don't have the mobility to keep their shoulders closed. So it's not always, sometimes it is just a movement issue. They've been cued to throw. Just throw strikes and they, they have a pushing, you know, pushing arm action because their little league coach told them to just throw strikes. Don't worry about throwing hard. It'll come with age. And sometimes it actually boils down to they physically can't get into the right positions because their, their body won't let them. So it's, it's, it's a multi pronged approach. It's not just looking at the video. It's not just doing the assessment. It's not just getting all their starting strength metrics. It's the, the totality of everything that you can then start to, to pinpoint. And within that, if you still don't know 100%, but you can pinpoint a little bit more accurately. And from there, your trial and error becomes more targeted.
1: So I'm really trying to take an approach of, of and I know this may sound bad, but it's so hard to do, with uh, individualized training with every single one of my kids, uh, whether that's a that's a PO or whether that's a two-way kid. And as a as a team coach, it's tough because you've got so many to do that. So do you have any advice on how to individualize training uh, in the team setting.
0: So I think the best thing there is is understanding you have a you have a specific time constraint. You have, you know, you have your 15 minutes for the pitchers to throw, you have your, you know, hour for for batting practice, you have your hour for for lifts 3 days a week. Like you have you have these time constraints where everybody needs to be doing roughly the same roughly on the same page sure. those times, but within those specific times that's where it can be a lot more individualized. If all the pitchers are throwing for 15 minutes, each guy can have their own specific list of drills that they're doing or trying or testing. Not everybody has to throw to 90 feet. Some guys can be doing max long toss. If, it, if they're on that specific day, some guys can be working on different drills. Some guys can be throwing, you know, throwing plios during that time. It doesn't have to be, everybody doesn't have to be doing the exact same thing for it to be effective for a practice to be effectively run. I know a lot of coaches and I run into this and, in, you know, I ran into this in my career, high school, college, and a lot of our athletes who are doing our remote program, but they're still playing with their with their school team, they run into some issues where there's this conventional baseball wisdom that if you're not doing the exact same thing as everybody else at every single moment of the practice, you're not a team player, mm-hmm. like it's bad for the team, you're gonna be singling yourself out, you're a me you're you know you're a me guy. so there there's definitely some of that that a lot of athletes are gonna have to be fighting with kind of older school coaches. My interpretation of the situation is that baseball is an individual sport played as a team and that if everybody is to develop to their maximum capacity, they need an individualized program. They need some sort of individualization through that to develop optimally. And if everyone is developing optimally, that's what's going to help the team win versus everyone just doing the same drills and the same at the same time for the same number of reps. To me, that's to me, that's a very outdated philosophy. Definitely. Um, from a strength training perspective you know it's it's as simple as you guys all have an hour to get your lift in but then each guy has their own unique lift and even if it's not individualized on an individual basis if it's at the very least like the pitchers have their own lift and the position players have their own lifts that they do and within that they each have like a five minute individualized mobility routine that they each do before they start something like that so at the very least there's an individualized component and over time as the coach gets more comfortable with with learning the assessment process, with learning, with learning all this stuff, it can become more and more individualized. But there has to be some sort of individualization there, um, and some sort of effort over time to make that as individualized as possible.
1: Right, and and I'm I'm right there with you, Ben. I think that that that's getting training from an outside perspective can be a a, a great thing. And I, I think the only thing that that we've really run into is is not. Uh, is not the outside training guys. It's it's the kids themselves. And so, like you were saying earlier, uh, there's some kids who would do every single one of those things that you're asking them to do, and then there's some kids who maybe like, eh, I did this with you know with this guy, and 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 so you run into you know if they're lifting with us, we know that they're lifting for sure. And if they say, well, I'm lifting, you know, outside of this, and then they're get, taking away from the team setting, I, I guess that's really the only thing that we've really run into as far as as training outside if that if that makes sense
0: oh for sure no i definitely think it can all be done in-house like it it can all be done at the same time in 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 a team setting Mm -hmm. as long as the strength coach is aware and able to understand that these guys don't all need the exact same exercise prescriptions like we'll have guys who have absolutely no business squatting who their college coach is forcing them to squat but they don't have hip mobility to get to depth without pinching their hip or they're forced to do weighted chin-ups, but they don't have the, the supination at their wrist to do that without pain in their wrist. Like As long as they—this the, the, can all be done in the team setting. It doesn't have to be guys going out and lifting on their own. Mm-hmm. The problem is guys feel like they have to go out and lift on their own because in the team setting, their strength coaches don't understand this. And they're all forced to do the exact same thing. So they feel like the only way they can get better is by going off and doing it on their own.
1: And I think that just comes back to communication between you know the kids— I'll I'll just refer to that as a, as a trainer versus the kids high school or college coach and and we all need to do a better job of communicating because there's there's a lot of great baseball coaches out there and there's a lot of great trainers out there and and in the end it's just going to help the kids get better. Absolutely. So, uh, another another I don't want to say problem but another issue running into especially high school in the high school setting is two-way guys. And you and you have a couple of them in college, but how do we get an abundant amount of work without just wearing them out but making sure that they're getting enough of both aspects of it
0: definitely so a big a big role in training prescription regardless of position is there's there's what's called a maximum recoverable volume your body can only recover from so much and still adapt and rec- still adapt to it and still be recovered by the next you know, the next training stimulus, there's, there is a finite recovery ability for your body. You can't keep piling things on indefinitely and expect the body to recover. So, um, in a, in a, in two way sense, you know, if you're going to be adding things in, you need to also be taking something away. If you're going to be adding in an extra hour of ground balls and, and throwing, you know, from the outfield, if you're going to be adding in all this stuff that needs to be taken away from somewhere in their, you know, pitching preparation routine, um, from a from a strictly from a training perspective from a strength training perspective um, it is very similar training position players versus pitchers because ultimately you're trying to create maximum efficiency through each joint and it's ultimately trans- transferring into how can we create a more efficient thrower we're not really we're not trying to create more efficient pitchers we're trying to create more efficient throwers mm-hmm. who happen to pitch but if they also happen to throw balls 95 from the outfield it's still it's still rotation and it's the biomechanics of that throw are very similar even with a catcher throw there's there's some difference in the biomechanics but it's still rotation you still need a lot of the same there's still a lot of the same mobility prerequisites there there's still much of the same strength prerequisites so a a big misconception is that you know just because you're a position player you can go you know get super tight and and muscle bound and and do partial range of motion bench press and max that all the time and crush your forearms like there's a misconception that you can just not worry about it um, because those symptoms don't arise as quickly in position players often, um, because they don't have nearly the throwing volume that pitchers do. So with pitchers, you have to be a little bit more careful or people know to be careful with pitchers because of the throwing volume. If you aren't careful, issues arise and position players, they tend to abuse position players a little bit because it takes longer for these symptoms to arise. If that makes sense. But, but again, from my, my training perspective is very comparable between the two. In terms of just creating better athletes, adding muscle mass, uh, improving body composition as much as possible, and improving rotational power, it's, it's very similar from that perspective. And then from a throwing perspective, um, it's it's understanding the overall throwing volume and stress that you're placing on that athlete. Using common sense, really, it's it's not going from throwing a 35 pitch bullpen, which is all the throwing the pitchers had that day, and then making that one two way guy go and spend 20 minutes fielding you know fielding ground balls. And throwing max effort to first base, it's being it's it's understanding the the throwing workload is, is kind of the biggest the biggest thing. And, and there's there have been studies that did show that a gigantic risk for injury is two way guys, It's guys who pitch and then go and play another position. It, that's that's a that's a giant risk factor for injury.
1: No, and there was a great article that came out last year about uh, McKay from Louisville, who was the you know first overall pick. And they talked, or was he the first? He might have been top five. Anyway, uh, early, the, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And so they were just talking about. So he was a two way guy, played first base, and was uh, was their best pitcher. And they talked about just counting the number of throws the year before, and they were just astounded by how many throws that he made that they didn't even even think about from first base, which is a you know a less stressful position to throw from. But they just made a a conscious effort of limiting the amount of throws that he did on the infield. And so I think they limited it to like one day a week that he was actually going, and then the rest of it he was just picking it up and put it in a bucket. It wasn't necessarily eye opening for me, but it was one of those okay. So this is something that that they're obviously think is important. So I mean, if they think it's important, then and they're doing they're doing the right thing. So it's something that we all need to incorporate as well.
0: No, that's that's a great example. You you wonder how many coaches aren't doing that unless the guy is a you know the best player on the team. Mm-hmm. Like if you you wonder if if. In his case, they they really took care of him because of his situation. But if there aren't lots of coaches, you know, at the high school level, college level, you know, maybe in my case where it's a walk on, maybe he doesn't get that same treatment. Um, so I, th- I think it's that's a great example. It's it's being aware of the total number of throws that that athlete is playing a placing on his arm. And the same thing we see uh, we we see with bullpen guys all the way, uh, you know, all the time. Is you know, in my case in college, I might only throw once over three game series. I might only throw in one game for one inning. That doesn't paint the whole story. If I Was up and down, getting hot all three games for three innings each game. If, you know, there were weekends where I didn't throw, but I had thrown the equivalent of five or six or seven innings in the bullpen. Being careful as a, as a manager is all I'm saying in terms of how you warm pitchers up too, because throws, throwing workload is still throwing workload, even if it's not an in-game pitch, just like throwing, you know, in practice, throwing from first base, throwing that ball into the, to the hitter, to the fungo guy, like that's still a throw. So being being aware of of the total number of throws your guys are making, even if it's not an in game throw.
1: Got it. So we're uh, we're in season right now, and talking about throwing and talking about throwing workload. So what should a and, and we can do this as a starter and a reliever, but just as a reliever, you're pitching once a, or as a starter, you're pitching once a week, and it's really easy to set up your schedule. So what should a starter's in season training look like?
0: As far as as far as strength training.
1: Just as far as, you know, what does the schedule look like? So you've got your your pitch a day where you're, where you're starting on the mound, and what would maybe the next six days kind of look? Can you give us a rough draft of what an ideal week would look like for those guys?
0: Yeah, so for starters, it's a little bit uh, a little bit easier to plan out. Uh, it's, obviously, it's obviously predictable in, in the once-a-week starter. We're trying to get three to four lifts per week in season in order to maintain strength. And some guys you can actually – Especially in high school, you can still be increasing strength slightly in season. But the goal, again, is strength maintenance without overtraining guys so that they're sore and and fatigued for for their actual outings. So Mm -hmm. to do that, we like having a lift, ideally, the night of the outing. So they they finish their outing and they go do a 25-minute lift that night, lower body. That would be the ideal scenario because then the following day, they can lift upper body, 25, 30-minute upper body lift. Then they have an off day. Then they have a bullpen day, a light bullpen day with another lower body lift. The following day they have another upper body lift and then they still have time before their next outing. So they still have two days before their their next start. That's one option we give guys is to to break it up like that where they have an upper lower split so they're lifting four times per week but they're very short. They're 25-30 minute lifts. The other option is condensing it into total body lifts so twice per week but they would be you know, 50, 60 minute lifts where you're combining upper and lower body on both of those days. So he might pitch following day, do a total body off day, bullpen, total body off day, off day would be an example. So you want to make sure he, ha- he has a couple off day, a couple days between training and that next outing. So he's not lifting like the day before that next outing. And you want to get that first lift as close as possible to that, to that outing. If not that the night of, then the, the next day. To, to maximize the amount of recovery time before that next outing.
1: Okay. And do you have any tips because we're going to run into this and in, in probably the next month or two and hopefully not with our guys, but there's going to be a lot of guys around the country who their arms just, you get the dead arm syndrome and I, I don't know a better way to put that, but some people say you throw too much. Some people say you don't throw enough. Some, And I've also heard your recovery techniques plus your lifting and it's all kind of a big mix, but mm-hmm. How do we how do we make sure we keep our velo to where we want to where we're peaking at the right time and we're peaking consistently throughout the season to avoid dead arm?
0: Yeah, so it's definitely it's definitely a balancing act, um, especially for relievers who you never really know when you're going to throw. It's it's even more of a balancing act because what happens is if you end up always trying to be fresh and never never strength training, never doing anything to maintain your strength in season, you might be fresh for those couple weeks. But over time, you're going to start losing strength and then you aren't peaked at the end of the season when you really need it. So for relievers, it's especially, it's especially a balancing act. It's a big part of it. A big part of the, the not getting too fatigued in season is picking the right dose for your in season training. So a good rule of thumb is for that we're using is cutting the volume of your training in half and dropping the intensity by 10%. So if you would normally train four times per week, and do three sets or four let's just say four sets of 10 on everything with 100 pounds in season that would become two sets of 10 with 90 pounds so you're still keeping fairly heavy weight but you're chopping the volume in half so your your hour-long lifts become half an hour so that's that's the biggest that's the easiest way to maintain strength is to keep the intensity high but drop the volume way low so you're working up to one or two heavy sets per exercise minimize soreness but it's still enough to maintain strength over the course of the season so that's the big that's a big one is a lot of guys are doing way too much in season they're treating it like off-season lifting and they just burn themselves out over time um, another big one is coaches think that conditioning and running every single day is important and so guys are spending 25 minutes a day you know they're running 15 sprints a day and what happens is they're these guys joints never get a break and they just get beat down and beat down and beat down and if, if you're getting these if you're getting the symptoms it's not just dead arm but your body feels beat up it's a sign of the stimulus is too much. You're, you're not, you're not recovering from the stimulus. So you need to take something away. And it's not always the coach's fault. Like the coach is responsible for kind of how much stimulus, but the athlete is also responsible for a lot of what they're doing from a recovery standpoint. Are they getting to bed on time? Are they getting eight hours of quality sleep per day? Or are they staying up till 2 a.m., you know, and having to wake up for an 8 a.m. class? Are they hitting their nutrition or are they, you know, going to Burger King and then grabbing a margarita like the, the player has a responsibility as far as the recovery standpoint because they can't you can't improve your recovery ability with the nutrition with proper sleep and then the coach has a responsibility to in making sure that the dose of stress is as controlled as it can be as far as tra- training volume as far as conditioning volume you know twice a week is more than enough of sp- sprints in season and then the coach also has a responsibility like we talked about with the overall number of throws not not abusing guys, not leaving start- starters out there for 130 pitches, not having relievers get, get hot, get cold, get hot, get cold eight times in a game because they're stressed out that the starter has just got to a 2-0 count. And so they need to get the guy, get the reliever hot eight times and just wear his arm out. So the coach definitely has a shared responsibility with the athlete in monitoring that total workload. But like you said, it's, it's the totality of the equation. It's not just one or two things. And if you're having those symptoms of, of dead arm, it's. It's time to take something away. So even, even, if that, even if you're still throwing every day of the week, six days a week, it's okay to have a day where you just flip the ball 30 feet to your partner. If your arm's giving you that sign, you probably need, need a day like that. So just because you're throwing doesn't mean that it has to be a, a max effort day, especially in, in, in the day and age where velocity training is now kind of in style and in, the buzzword intent is in style. So every time guys pick up balls, they think they need to be throwing at max effort. Every time they pick up a plyo care ball, they think they need to throw that max effort. When, you know, when we tell them 30%, they think they're throwing at 75%. So it's, it's being aware of, of what your recovery days are actually, actually are, which is a recovery day. It's a decrease in that training stimulus. So t- guys need to be able to take their recovery days as actually actual recovery days, not as 75% days.
1: Okay. For your max intent days, do you still recommend one or two, or or how many do you recommend between starts? So you've got your start day. Now, how many other days of the week should they really be letting it loose?
0: So, if if guys are having symptoms of dead arm in season, I, I don't think you know as a starter, I don't think you need to be throwing max effort okay. outside of that start. If, if you're having, if your arm is giving you those signs that it's not recovering, the last thing you need to do is go throw thirty five pitches max effort on that day three bullpen. Mm-hmm. In that case, I would treat the bullpen as. A touch field bullpen, working on your pitches, letting the arm recover as much as possible. Hit a twenty to thirty pitch bullpen and and cut it for a starter. Um, for a reliever, it's a little difficult because it, it kind of depends on the role. Uh, if it's a you know three to four inning long reliever, if it's a, a closer. In my case, in college, I had zero idea when I was going to throw, so I had I kind of had to I had to mix and match and pick and choose one or two days a week that I was going to let it go in in my pregame throwing. And and kind of play the odds based on if I thought I might pitch that day or not. But it was kind of a crapshoot for me. Um, sometimes what I would do is, is kind of take it easy before the game, assuming I would pitch. And let's say it was a Sunday game and I knew I'd have Monday off the next day. And let's, if I didn't pitch, I would throw after the game. So I would grab a catcher and throw a, you know, 15 to 20 pitch bullpen, let it go a little bit to, to simulate that one inning that I didn't throw. But wait till after the game, wait till I knew if I I was going to pitch or not to To do that, to do that scenario, but it's definitely, uh, definitely m- much more of a balance for a reliever. But getting a couple times a week of of letting it go as a reliever is is a good idea. If you're not, if you're not getting a ton of those, uh, a ton of those live opportunities, still taking a couple times a week to, to simulate that in catch play or or in bullpens is a good idea.
1: Okay. And staying on the subject of recovery, what are what's some of your specific uh, recovery stuff that you love?
0: So. I know I know we're kind of talking you know in this day and age it's it's convenient to talk about post throwing recovery routines um, I don't necessarily look at it in in that context where it has to be post throwing mm-hmm. I'm looking at it in the over the course of the week looking at looking at the stimulus and looking at looking at the tools over the course of the week that are allowing guys to recover or not not it doesn't necessarily the timing is basically isn't that important whether it's done immediately after throwing or whether it's mixed into your lifting routine or whether it's you know pre throwing as part of your warm-up, the timing isn't as important to me as the fact that guys are doing what they need to do to take care of your arms. And so from a, from a corrective standpoint, we know that in throwers, you tend to see loss of external rotation strength. So some sort of, some sort of rotator cuff work, um, whether or not guys do it post-throwing or it's part of their, you know, supersetted with their squats, it doesn't really matter. But doing a couple days a week of external rotation work, um Doing some sort of scapular stability, scapular strengthening work, I's, Y's, T's, um, crossover symmetry is an example of that. Some sort of scap uh, scap strengthening work as well um, can be pretty important. So I would call that more corrective work than like a direct arm recovery work because it, it's still – that's still a, a stressor. That's still a stimulus on your arm. That's still something that your body has to recover from. Mm-hmm. Going and doing heavy external rotations isn't really recovery work, but it's still what I would consider arm care. Um As far as actual recovery work, you're looking at more things that are very low impact that, that are going Im- to influence the blood flow to the area. That's what I would consider more of a recovery modality. Sure. So from specific things like voodoo band flossing, I'm a big fan of that, and that can be done pre-throwing and post-throwing. It's kind of counterintuitive that you're you're cutting off blood flow temporarily, but it does have an increase in blood flow once you take it off once you've gone through the different uh, the different positions for the voodoo floss. Our guys really really seem to like that you do get a rush of blood flow through your arm after doing that. You know, I don't have the, I don't have the science behind that. It's, it's why it's called the voodoo pan. Right, um, right. But that's, that's something we really like that really seems to, to increase blood flow there. Um, kind of a passive blood flow modality is, is the Mark pro. Um, so we, you know, that's not like mandatory for athletes. We don't, we don't go tell guys they have to drop $600 on a Mark pro, but we do use those ourselves and, and have seen some benefit there um just by, having a kind of a passive contraction, pumping blood through the area. Um, and then generally just getting the heart pumping. So if that's 15 minutes of riding the bike, riding the stationary bike, post outing, um, guys freak out that they're going to get slow and, and lose their fast twitch ability and, you know, all this stuff. And it's, it's kind of a fine line. If you're doing so much, if you go and, you know, do so much running cardio, if you want to call it that post, post throwing that it's going to inhibit your recovery. Um, that's an issue. But if it's, Something light that's just getting your heart pumping. I'm a fan of that. I'm a fan of getting blood going through your arm multiple times per day. And, and just staying active is a big thing too. When, when I was in college, I was walking all over campus all day. My, my heart rate was going all day. Um, and I recovered quicker because of that. And then you get into pro ball and it's, it's the off season and you know, you're sitting around all day outside of the hour that you're actually training and, and doing your throwing. And you notice that you just aren't recovering as well. You just when you sit around all day you just don't recover well so just generally being more active plays in my opinion a bigger role than anything else I mentioned because you're con- you're having blood pumping eight hours a day if you're just active you're up and walking you're up and about and then adding kind of adding on to the end of this um, something that we're we're experimenting with um, some research that we've uh, we've come across on on sauna use so hmm. sitting in a sauna for 15 20 minutes three to four times a week there's, there's a good amount of research showing an impact on natural growth hormone production. So your body reacts to that stimulus. It's called hyperthermic conditioning it reacts to that stimulus by releasing an elevated amount of natural growth hormone. So that's, that's the research. What I've noticed in practice is that sleep quality is better. You're, you're just a little bit, I wouldn't do this pre workout or if you have a game later that day, but as kind of the last thing of the day it's much easier to fall asleep you seem to have deeper sleep and you seem to have a little bit less muscle soreness so that's kind of that's subjective but but the science is what the science says is that it's it's having an impact on natural growth hormone production so um, that's something we're kind of playing around with um, that's not like a firm recommendation for our athletes but um, it's, it's not going to hurt to try that as well
1: I gotcha just to to talk about voodoo floss a little bit we actually were ordering a mark pro right now so hopefully it'll be be in pretty soon but we floss uh, we don't do it every day but we probably do it every other day and you know i've had a couple people on the show or at least spoken to a couple of people as well who have been like eh hit or miss but i'll tell you what it's cheap and our kids love it like they they're like man it, my arm feels so much better uh, after that and and i like that you threw in the that's why it's called the voodoo band because there's not a whole lot of but it does i mean it it, it makes the kids feel a lot better
0: you know, it's it's a little unclear exactly how that how it does what it does. But yeah, we're, we're uh, anyone who's tried it kind of understands what I'm saying.
1: Definitely. And so the last thing that, that I wanted to ask you about in season, that's probably the hardest part of being a pitching coach because I think we have a pretty firm understanding of how to be more mobile, how to get better in the weight room, how to gain velocity, and recovering techniques have come a long ways. But something I think that we can all – do a little bit better job of is teaching command and it just, it's so different for each kid. So is there any, you know, any way that that you guys teach command or, or, or how do you guys teach it in general?
0: So that's, it's kind of a loaded question. I don't feel like anybody has fully figured out the command aspect. Mm -hmm. Um, It it does come down to how well you can you repeat your release point. And that's, that's kind of a loaded question too. Um, I will say that from a, I'll address this from a mental standpoint. Because that's, that's a big factor too. If, if you, if you don't have a consistent routine and not, not just in terms of like a pregame routine or a pre-inning routine, but a consistent pre-pitch routine, which gets you in the same mental state before every throw, it's very hard for your body to repeat as consistently. So in other words, if you, if you look at, if you look at basketball players, if you look at anyone, any basketball player shooting a free throw, they are religious about their pre, pre-shot routines. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not because like it looks cool. It's not because of the routine. It's because of the effect that the routine has on the mental side. It's the effect that it has in terms of getting your brain to reproduce the same release at the same angle from the same slot. So, you know, free throws are, are a simpler motor pattern. Like you're, you're dealing with your wrist joint, your elbow joint, your shoulder joint. And it's, it's relative. It's relatively, it's not as complex as throwing a baseball, but. That's just—it's a good example of how important pre-pitch routines are. So that's that's like that's a blanket one that you can apply to everybody, no matter if they're submarine or throw over the top. So there's a lot that goes into the command side of things, but from a mental side, that's something that everybody can take something away from: is spending time practicing your routine. You watch Clayton Kershaw; they, they highlight him in the postseason. They, they like they show him two hours before the game, and what's he doing? He's he's in his bro tank doing his dry reps. And he's not just going through the motions. He's working on his pre-pitch routine. He's taking the same deep breath at the same point when he comes set. What we teach is have some sort of mantra or or one word saying, like attack, or whatever you need to tell yourself that gets your mind in the exact same state before every single throw. It's like the last thing your brain hears before you go. It's like the reset point. So I, I think that's very important. And that's very overlooked. In, in terms of command mm-hmm. is it command command issues aren't always mental issues. I don't, I don't want to say that. I don't want to say if a guy walks three batteries, he's a mental midget, but I've had a wide array of mechanics in my career and the majority of them were absolutely awful. And there's no reason I should have been able to repeat my release point half as much as I did. But the routines were kind of the, that was what saved me. That was how I got through the first couple of years of college when I was all over the place mechanically is despite all of that, you can hone in you can hone in on a to a pretty good extent by getting your routines right and by, by using the deep breath, by practicing, just doing it the same way every time.
1: And that's something that, that I think we we all, like you said, overlook a little bit. And is that a is that a common problem? And just to compound the the question, what is what are the most common problems you see with kids and how do we prevent those?
0: Kind of kind of to backtrack to, to what we talked about earlier with, with what we look for. In, in guys that we work with, I think the most common problem is, is guys aren't. It's more of a an attitude standpoint. Is, is guys aren't really willing to to question coaches or or take an active role in their own career. Is guys are a lot of the attitudes that you see are you know I'm going to sit here and wait for my coach to tell me what to do and then I'm going to do that as well as I can and then I'm going to go home. Like there's there's not an active participation in your career. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's what I saw. In high school that's what i saw in college is you know most guys were getting by on their natural ability and they had a coaching staff that was supposed to get them better and they're listening they listen to what the coaches say they do what the coaches say and they place 100 all of their all of their development they place their entire career in the hands of this coaching staff that could very well leave the next year and in my case did leave two years in and then you just roll the dice and you have another coaching staff that's going to give you different cues different feedback have a completely different approach so i think most common general problem is is most players place way too much faith in their coaches to do all of the work in the development process when really it's a give and take process. That's why I, I encourage our guys to question everything I tell them and, and why most of what I tell them is a suggestion with an explanation behind why I'm suggesting that, not a, you know, I've been doing this for thirty years, so listen to me, you have to do it this way, which is like that's kind of that's kind of how the baseball world operates. Um so it's it's the unwillingness to take an active role. Or the inability to see that they need to take an active role in their career is kind of a general thing. And then from like a, from a mobility standpoint, we can break it down like the common things you see. You see, we already kind of touched on it. You see some hip internal rotation limitations. You see, you know, limitations through thoracic spine, through the shoulder, um, in terms of rotation. Um, you see strength deficits, you know, inability to, to produce force off a single leg. So you're seeing that in, in terms of poor back leg drive or poor uh, front side bracing. You see a lot of common strength deficits there. There's kind of a there's kind of an array of, of ways I can I can approach that question. But yeah, I think I think the attitude one is is the most the most common, and that's something that we we kind of artificially select for players who don't have that attitude. And we're we're in a unique situation that a lot of coaches listening to this aren't in. You kind of you get the players that you recruited, and like you know a percentage of those guys aren't gonna aren't gonna take it as seriously or go above and beyond. We kind of we've been able to through our remote platform, handpick and artificially select the guys that, that are willing to, you know, question the status quo and take a very active role in their career and in, in communicating with us uh, about the, what they're feeling and not just taking a drill we give them and, and just doing it because we told them to.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and I think, you know, with, with kids, you know, and, and this is just me being a little bit progressive. I love it whenever a kid asks about, different things but it's also a tone of of the way that they approach it as well you know i i want kids to know why we're doing certain things and i don't want them to blow me up about it just like they wouldn't want me to blow them up about it if they didn't completely understand something but i think it does show a lot a, a lot about a kid whenever he does go hey so do you mind explaining this a little bit more in depth so i can get a full understanding of of what we're doing here or or just like you said taking ownership of your career doing it in a respectful way and i think That that's that's awesome for both sides, because one it's showing the coach that, man, I'm really willing to do what it takes. I just want to know how to do it better. And then for the kid, they're obviously taking ownership of their career, but and also getting a better understanding of that, if that makes sense.
0: Absolutely. I, I prefer to see that you can you can tell a lot about a coach if based on his reaction when an athlete questions something he says. And if he gets angered by this, the fact that an athlete said, well, is this really like the best thing for me? Like, this feels weird. If he gets angry by that, I think that's, that's a very telling sign because I think, I think if a coach is genuinely has the athlete's best interest at heart and can put his ego aside, you know, he would, he, those coaches tend to be a lot more open to the, the give and take and the feedback and, and understanding that, you know, I, I see every single day that my, you know, I, that's, that's why a lot of what I say is a suggestion because I, just repeatedly see that things work for some guys and don't work for others. Mm -hmm. So phrasing it in terms of like a suggestion, let's try it this way. Let's measure it. Let's see if there's a a positive effect or not. And you tell me like then and encouraging feedback for how it feels. That's, that's why I I phrase it that way. Because I just repeatedly see that like the same cue doesn't work for It might work for one guy and just not work for other guys.
1: No, that makes sense. And so, Ben, you, I know you've done a ton of research, and you've done a ton of research for not only yourself but for your kids. So what are some of your favorite resources, books, programs, etc., that our listeners can start digging into? And I'll also, I'll also link your book down in the show notes. It's a fantastic resource. It's called Building the 95-Mile-An-Hour Body. But what are some of your personal favorite resources?
0: Definitely. So my, my general uh, kind of philosophy or how, how I arrive at my own philosophy – is I think it has to be a hybrid of other philosophies. It's, you know, I don't, I don't marry myself to like one tool. Like in the training world, there's people who are like, I'm the kettlebell guy or I'm the, you know, in the velocity world, it's like, I'm the weighted ball guy or I'm the long toss guy. Like I, I really believe in being a hybrid and learning from all relevant disciplines, even if it doesn't seem that relevant, even if, you know, from a nutrition standpoint, you know, a lot of what I've learned from the nutrition side is from the guys, natural bodybuilders, guys who, their career, their their livelihood is based on their ability to manipulate their body composition in a short time frame, to add muscle, lose fat, that sort of thing. So some of the guys that I would recommend readers look up, Eric Helms, Mike Isratel, John Berardi, um, and then the companies you guys can look up, they have a lot of free content. Renaissance Periodization is, is a company that has a lot of nutrition information. Precision nutrition is another one. Um so from a nutrition standpoint, those are those are some of the best Best resources I can recommend to, to look up um, from a training perspective, you know, from a, for more advanced guys who are, have built a strength base, I would look up Brian Mann, M-A-N-N and velocity based training. Um, that's, that's a good resource for guys to, to dig into who have built a strength base for guys who are just getting into the strength training and, and kind of want to understand some of the, the principles and different techniques. Jim Wendler, Martin Burkhan, uh, Mark Ripito uh Mike Isertel has a lot on that as well. Um those are just some guys that you can you can look up. Um those are some good resources, ton of free content from all these guys for studying mechanics, for throwing mechanics and and just looking at a ton of video of big leaguers. I have to recommend uh Rob Friedman Pitching Ninja who you've had on here. Um he has a Dropbox pinned on his Twitter account that is just full of thousands of of you know alphabetized slow-mo video of any big leaguer you could dream of. And I'd also check out Paul Nyman. He's a guy that's been around for a long time, but you know, he's, he's one of the original guys that I I learned a lot of what I I know about throwing mechanics from as far as the physics of, of throwing a baseball hard. Um, Paul Nyman and and his company Set Pro was one of the original uh, pitching forums that I, that I went on. Um, And then you, you mentioned my book and, and that's kind of, that's kind of a synthesis of, of all the principles and, and from that we've been covering here, mobility, nutrition. Um, mechanical, all the principles and all the things that helped me in my transformation. And then just kind of working in, you know, more details about my story and, you know, trying to make it as, as straightforward of a read as possible to where anyone from a 13 year old picking up that ebook to a, you know, we've had MLB pitching coaches buy that ebook and, and still get a couple of things out of it. So, um, trying to kind of weave my story into, into that, but still give a lot of applicable information through that, you know, for guys who want to check that out, that's a great option too.
1: That's definitely I, I have it. And I've had it for a couple of years, which is I think when I started following you, uh I bought it. And it's, it's very straightforward. There's not a lot of nutrition or weightlifting verbiage that, like you said, a 13 to even, you know, somebody new in that world couldn't understand. So it's fantastic read. And for my last question, at least as far as resources go, what's the best coaching tool that you've bought for under $100?
0: So I'm going to, I'm going to cheat this question and give you two. And one of them is not under $100. <laughs> okay. uh, but the, to, to actually answer your question, I would say plyo care balls okay. are, are the best under $100 purchase um, simply because if you're using them properly, which is in individualized constraint drills that are designed to address a specific mechanical flaw. Then they are great coaches in and of themselves because specifically the heavy balls, because the balls give the heavier the ball, the more immediate feedback your arm is getting through space as to the, the pattern it's going through. In other words, if you're trying to teach a kid a a more efficient arm action and you put a slap a two pound ball in his hand and have him go through that path at 15% effort, it's a lot easier to feel, you know, it's a lot easier to feel with that increased immediate feedback from the ball weight. And so that's, that's kind of a slippery slope because you don't want to go too, too heavy. Usually kind of a two pound ball is the limit that we'll use with our, with our guys. If you go too heavy, it starts to alter the biomechanics too far from, from a baseball. But I really like how the plyo care drills, we, we have a ton of free tutorials on showing how to, how to use these balls and the different drills and variations, but they are great coaches in and of themselves. You don't need to be standing there watching every throw for the pitcher and giving him verbal cues every throw they're going to be able to figure out a lot of more efficient patterns just by using the the different ball weights and the different drills so that's a great coaching purchase and then my my cheating answer is pocket radar very kind of touched on how you're training blind if you're trying to improve velocity and you don't have a radar gun Um, the pocket radar made these actually relatively affordable so you can get them for under it might be right at 300 bucks now so pocket radar has we've tested them side by side with with stalkers and uh, they're within a mile an hour accuracy which you don't see from other budget radar guns so we're, we're very comfortable putting our recommendation on the pocket radar even though it's not a hundred dollar tool so those are the those are the two
1: got it i love the the pocket radar as well we we use it a ton and i love that I, it's a tim ferris question and it's it's always good answers especially in the world of coaching where. We're not all getting paid uh, a ton of money. So, uh, but thank you for throwing those out there. And to further your plow ball routines, they're different and they're different from, from what driveline does specifically. Uh, and we, we all do the driveline stuff, but especially for guys who get really long with the forearm fly out and their, their arms are late. Uh, I had a couple of them doing your flip up routine the other day and they really, they really like that a lot. If you're looking for something to do, that's a little bit different that the the driveline uh, routines aren't getting to which most of them are, are really really good really good drills but if you're looking for something extra ben does a great job of explaining everything and so definitely go check that out if they do want to go check that out where can they find you online in case they want to get in touch
0: yeah so we're at www.treadathletics.com uh, you can also find us on twitter at TreadAthletics, instagram tread underscore athletics um, just google us you'll find us it's, it's not hard to find us um, we're posting all the time on social media. We're very responsive to, to emails. So if you have a specific question, um, don't hesitate to email us as well. Contact at treadathletics.com. We're more than happy to talk to you guys. So uh, we get players reaching out all the time with specific questions. Uh, we're happy to, to respond to those questions. And then for guys who are interested in, in kind of taking the next step and just want some more information, you know, we're always happy to talk to those guys as well. So. Um. Definitely reach out if you're interested, and and I appreciate you know I appreciate you taking the time to interview me here today and kind of share my story.
1: No, it's awesome. And and uh, open mic if there's anything else you'd like to tell our listeners before you go. Uh, I'm sure they'd love to hear. But anything else you'd like to tell them?
0: I think I think generally um, just sharing the message that most guys haven't really tapped in close to the potential they really have. I, I think I think part of the benefit, part part of the reason I was able to do what I've done. And, and I'm still, you know, I'm still pursuing my own career is the belief that there was more potential in me than I had. And, you you know, having done what I've done and, and seeing all these, you know, I see Division Three players that are 6'3", 190 and throwing 87. And they're way ahead of where I was when I was, you know, when I had their frame and size. I and mean, like they're way ahead of where I was, but they don't believe they're ever going to throw 90. But they don't believe it's even possible to throw 95. Like they've already written themselves off. I think understanding and believing in the potential that, that you have and not, you know, not that everyone can throw 100 miles an hour or 95 miles an hour, but I think a, a lot more people than give themselves credit are capable. So I, I think without that belief first, guys don't then take the effort to actually climb that mountain and figure out all these things that, that I've been able to figure out over the years. Um, due to that starting belief that it was possible.
1: Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. If you'd like to view the show notes or get in touch with me, you can find all of that information on our website at aotcpodcast.com or on the Texas High School Baseball Coaches Association app. Help us out by subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show. But before you go, Here's a quick word from our friends at Keeper of the Game. Hi, I'm Cam Wright, Keeper of the Game Player Rep for Frisco League and Dallas Junior Wheelchair Mavericks. Thank you for supporting Keeper of the Game.